0: hello good people thank you for joining me again I'm very happy to be with you and to discuss some very interesting things I told you on my last video that I had some more stuff that I wanted to talk about regarding John Verveke's series on addressing the meaning crisis and specifically I want to go into this concept that he delivered to all of us with such interesting material from cognitive science about how it is that the fact that we are embodied creatures that have to move through the world, that have to navigate the world, is responsible for a lot of our cognitive functioning, the cognitive machinery that we have built. And I thought that was fascinating. And I, as I was listening to him, I started thinking about all of the other creatures who have to move through the world and how some of these things might apply to them. Now I have chickens, so I would go out in my chicken yard and I look at the chickens and I think, is there any relevance realization going on around here in this chicken yard, in these little bird brains? And um, I would try and think about how the things that he was saying in his lectures might apply to some of their activities and they're thinking and then how far down the phylogenetic tree would some of these things go you might remember also that at the top of his structure he had wonder awe and horror and i thought that that could be a little more granular uh paul vanderclay did try to um give some more distinctions with this by bringing in some cs lewis material in a follow-up video but still i thought there could be more distinctions made between those things and maybe kind of an understanding of where these things might lie on a continuum or if they even lie in a continuum maybe there's points where they're disjunct so what i did is i created a structure that is like a ladder it is a ladder all right and i don't know how to call the things i put on the ladder whether i should call them sentiments or responses or exactly what maybe if you look at it i made a google doc and i'm going to put the link to it in the show notes maybe you could tell me what would be a word or term that all of these things would fit under but what i have is on the rails of the ladder i have positive and negative sides so the positive sides are the things that a, um, a an organism would move toward and the things on the other side are the things the organism would move away from. And what I did is I put the positive things on the left and the negative things on the right. And I know probably um, Jonathan Paget would say that's wrong, but I'm left-handed so I'm gonna exercise my sinister self-paw prerogative and that's how I did it. <laughs> Now the rungs of the ladder um, display some levels that I think go from simpler to more complex ways in which organisms move within the environment. So let me kind of lay it out and I'll just sort of go up the levels and uh, you can print the Google Doc out and take notes on it and follow along with me if you like or you can scribble all over it and then tell me all the ways in which I'm wrong. Whatever, <laughs> let's go. All right, so on the bottom young, the most basic movement that I could think of with an organism would be a movement from discomfort to comfort. So the organism would move away from discomfort, would move toward comfort. Um, There's a reason why I didn't use pleasure versus pain. First of all, because I think the pleasure would be in more sophisticated organisms and i wanted something that would apply all the way down to very simple organisms and then pain can be something that arises inside of an organism because of a disease process but then the movement of the organism would not affect pain because they would just take the pain with them if they have carrying it inside their body so what i'm talking about here is the immediate contact of an organism with the environment and wanting to move in a particular direction based on environmental um, conditions. So to give you an example, um, I when I go in my compost bin and I turn it up, there's worms in it, earthworms, and um, immediately when they come in contact with the light, they want to go right back down into that dark, moist environment. They don't want to be up in the top. They don't want to dry out. They're uncomfortable at the top, and they're more comfortable down underneath all right that's an example another example might be a lizard that is um, on the cool ground and uh, sun is shining on rocks heated the rock up and the lizard wants to be warm so it moves up and it gets on top of the rock so that it can feel the warmth so it's moving towards warmth there's different things that Or organisms will move toward like this, like they'll move toward warmth or they might move toward coolness. If they are too hot, they'll move between light and dark. I think even a paramecium will move toward light. Um, Some other things that organisms will move toward or away from has to do with in water. They will move toward or away from water of a certain salinity, so they might move from saline saline water to brackish water to fresh water or vice versa depending on what salinity of water they like. Now these movements of animal organisms seem to be the most similar to the way plants move and that's why I I think they're the most basic because plants although they can't actually get up and, and move to another location they do move in response to the environment. They move in response to light, they'll move in response to heat, they'll move in response to, um, or they'll grow in a certain direction is what I mean. They'll grow but they'll also bend in a certain direction. They may um, send their roots out toward water or um, they'll bend uh, toward the sun, things like that. So that's the kind of movement I'm thinking of and I'm thinking that these very simple kinds of movements of an animal organism are the most similar to the way that plants move so i thought they were at the bottom of the ladder okay now the next kind of movement on my the next rung on the ladder i called it reject and accept so and we're talking about an organism is going to move away from that which it rejects and toward that which it accepts and in this case I'm talking about an organism not moving its own body, but moving things in its environment. So an example of this would be like the leaf roller. Um, insect that, that rolls a leaf around and closes it up so that it can make a little cocoon. It has to choose. And that's part of this reject accept dichotomy is that It's going to accept some leaves and it's going to reject others. It has to make a choice of what what leaf it's going to roll itself up in. You can think about um, a robin building a nest. So she goes around and she's picking and choosing little twigs and sticks that she's going to build her nest out of. And so the, the accepting and rejecting is not out of context the animals are, organisms are accepting something for something else. It's for a purpose, for utilizing whatever the thing is that they're moving around. So the robin is accepting or rejecting these sticks, not for some aesthetic reason or something, but just because it seems to her that it's useful or not useful for the thing that she's building. Now, somebody might say, well, you know, she's just doing that by instinct. Okay, fine, I understand. She has an instinct to build a nest, but the instinct is not going to tell her what stick to pick up, That's which of the sticks to pick up that's right in front of her. That's, and she as an individual bird has to do that. And it, it has to be this, here now, remember John Verbaki talking about the thisness now nowness of a thing that we encounter in the world, and I think that Robin probably is also encountering that in the same way in choosing which stick she's going to pick up there's There's more to it though I mean, she's got to choose a location, so it's she's got to accept this tree and reject these other trees she's got to accept this branch, and she's going to reject this other branch. And even in the process of accepting this branch here, now that she's going to put her nest on, she is also rejecting the current condition of that branch. So she's accepting it, but she's rejecting its current condition because she's going to change its condition. So you think about you, if you bought a plot of land and it had no house on it, you would be accepting that plot of land but at the same time you're rejecting the status quo condition of the land because you are intending to change it so there's this dance going on between acceptance and rejection and there's the choosing of things to use by many animals that build various structures and that had move things around now thinking of animals Organisms moving things around, I think the body plan and the way the organism uses its body to move things is very important so one thing that I notice about my chickens is that my chickens will not use their feet as hands as inconvenient as it is for them so if i if I give them like if I pick a weed and I throw it in there for them to eat. They cannot eat it just if it's laying on the ground because they need to tear pieces off of it. And if they pick it up to tear it, the whole weed is going to be coming with the little piece that they want to eat, and then they can't get it off easily. So what I do is um, I'll put the weed under something, or I have a uh, a little cage made out of one-inch wire. It's about four inches wide and two by two on either side, and I'll I can stuff it full of weeds and grass and stuff like that so they can reach through the one-inch wire with their beaks and they can pull out little pieces of whatever plant matter is in there and they can break it off just as they would be able to break it off if it was securely rooted in the ground and they were foraging for it now if they were smarter <laughs> they would just when they came up to something that was in the in the run that they wanted to eat that was not in that cage, like a a clump of grass or something, they would put their one foot on it, use their foot to hold it down, and then use their beak to pull it. But they never do that. They never use their feet as if they were hands. They don't pick things up and carry them with their feet from place to place. The most hand-like activity that they ever do with their feet is when the male is when a rooster is mating with a hen, he'll use his feet to hold on to the hen, but that's it. They don't use their feet in a hand-like way, but that is not true of all birds. So eagles and hawks, for instance, they will grasp something with their talons and they will carry it and then they will like the body of a small animal that they kill a rabbit or something, and then they'll carry it, and then they'll hold it down with one of their feet, and they'll peck at it with their with their uh, beak and tear it and eat it. but chickens don't do that; these other birds will use their feet as hands to hold on to something and uh, and then work on it with with their other. Foot or with their beak, but chickens won't. So chickens are dumber than eagles. And there are some birds like um, I think some seagulls or things that will go and they will pick up uh, shellfish in their feet and they will carry them over rocks and drop them and then they will uh, break open and then the birds will eat the uh, little shellfish that's inside. So they, they so some birds will use their feet as if they were hands. Now lizards do not. So a lizard will catch a bug in his mouth and he's got four feet so he's not handicapped. He doesn't have wings for his front limbs like the chickens do. He's got four feet with to- little toes on him but he struggles to get this bug into his mouth and he's pushing and pushing and pushing and struggling to get it in and but he will not pick up his front one of his front feet and just push that bug in he will not use his feet as hands i've never seen lizards do that i don't think that they do and so there's a difference in the way that animals use their body all mammals will use their front appendages or the land mammals anyway will use their front appendages to manipulate things in the world, to hold things down, or to pass them from one limb to another, things like that. Dogs, even it's um, people who study dog behavior re- behavior recognize that dogs actually understand the analogy between our hands and their front paws, and they will attempt to do with their paws, even though they don't have any fingers. They will attempt to do things with their paws in imitation of the way we use our hands. So they get it, even though they're handicapped by not having fingers, which is a good thing because they probably create a lot of mischief for us if they had fingers. But anyway, I think that's an important um, thing that affects what kind of cognition an animal has. Now, here's a very interesting thing that I heard. I heard this is years and years ago. I heard it read and I could not find it. I tried to look it up on the internet. So, if you know the source of this idea, tell me because I think this is interesting and might be correct. And the idea was that the structure of a sentence with a subject and a predicate is based on the fact that we have two hands and that we can hold something with one hand and we can do something to that thing with the other hand. So that that creates the mental framework of a sentence with a subject and a predicate. I find that very interesting. If that's true, that means that that is the basis for making a proposition, right? Remember John Barbake talking about propositional knowing. So maybe propositional knowing and to propose something is to put it forward to put it um, in a sense before you, to put it in front of you so that you can do something with it, right? It's the same idea of taking, you know, like taking a piece of wood in one hand and then, and then cutting it with the other hand or something like that. So that might be something to think about whether the construction that we have in sentences and in all languages have subject and predicate and that's how you make. That's the only way to make a propositional statement is with a subject and a predicate, right? Okay, now the next level, the next rung on my ladder is appeal versus disgust. So you're moving away from disgust and toward what appeals to you, away from what is disgusting to you and toward what is appealing to you. And notice the language something is you accept or reject something for like for a particular purpose right but something appeals to you it's a calls to you <laughs> you'll hear people say that right they'll say that donut is calling to me right so the fact that i use the donut is like a clue appeal is it's in the mouth so something appeals to us, it's mouth watering. If it's disgusting, we want to spit it out. So it's in the mouth. We're talking about appetitive desire, the desire to consume something according to taste. So this doesn't have to be food, though it often is, because we can have taste in various things, right? So you think about Think about an advertiser who's advertising consumer goods. The advertiser does not want to make the, uh, is not trying to give us a comfortable view of the product or think or have us think that it's acceptable, but rather that it will appeal to us, is trying to make an appeal to us, get it to call to us. And so, you know, you can have a taste in a lot of things, not just food, right? You can have a taste in clothes, taste in cars, taste in furniture, taste in houses. What if you don't like something? What is the language that we use? It doesn't matter if it's food or not. Language we use is like, yuck. Then we don't like something, it's yuck. Or, ew. See, then you're involving the nose, not just the mouth, which, you know, your sense of smell and sense of taste are so closely intertwined, And say. Do you like those shoes? Yuck, don't like those shoes. Did you like that play? Personally, I think it stinks. The play stinks, right? Did you like that art exhibit? Eh, it left a bad taste in my mouth. See, we're using all these words that have to do with mouth about these other things. Now, here's the thing about things that we that appeal to us. It's not a direct thing. It's not an unmediated thing. So let me see if I can make this clear. When I talked about the organism moving from comfort, from discomfort to comfort, it's a very direct. It's a
1: direct contact with the environment. And the organism cannot um, cannot make any mistake about
0: what it's about its comfort it just knows it's in direct contact with the environment now um, if we're talking about accepting rejecting then you open up the possibility of a mistake because let's say a beaver might choose might reject a bunch of trees and accept one tree cut it down take it to the beaver dam and it doesn't fit it's made a mistake But when you get into
1: things that appeal to you, you are, you have a state condition that
0: you're trying to get to. And you could make a mistake, but a new possibility has opened up. And that possibility is that you can be deceived. the reason is because the state that you want to get to is mediated by a third thing. So there's you as you are right now, there's the condition that you want to get into the state that you want to be in. For example, if you're thirsty, you want to be in the state of having drunk water. So what you want is water. Not really, you don't really want the water, you want to be in the state of having drunk the water. The water mediates between you and that desired state. So now we open up another possibility, not just the possibility of making a mistake, but the possibility of deceit. So (laughs) animals use this a lot, this possibility of deceit, like a lizard that has a breakaway tail, A bird wants to eat the lizard, the lizard appeals to the bird, looks like something yummy, bird goes to eat it, and the little tiny tail of the lizard breaks off and the bird is stuck and the lizard gets away because the bird has been deceived it did not get attempting to eat that lizard into the state that it wanted to get into which is the state of having eaten the lizard all right besides besides the possibility opening up of deceit there's a possibility of poisoning so a goat might Want to eat a plant? Why does it want to eat the plant? Because it wants to be in the condition of having eaten the plant. Plant is mediating between the goat and this condition the goat wants to get to. But it eats the plant, and the plant is poisonous. So instead of being in the condition of having eaten the plant, the goat is in the condition of being sick. Not the condition the goat was attempting to get to by eating the plant because of this mediating. Thing between the organism and the condition the organism is seeking, there's an opportunity for deceit. The deceit can go the other way. So, there's some moths, who probably would be very delicious for birds to eat, but those moths look like bird poop. So, they look like something disgusting. Yuck! But they're really delicious. So, they're deceiving the birds from the other way. There's a Another possibility, cognitive possibility, that opens up with this uh, um, disgust versus appeal, and that is the possibility of something being symbolic, right? So how does that work? Well, the the mediating thing, the thing that is desired, that is between the organism and the desired state, can become a stand-in for that desired state. So when an advertiser shows you a can of beer and it's got all the uh, condensation dripping off of it, and it looks real frosty and delicious, when you see that beer, that beer is a symbol, not of the beer, because it's not like, it's not like you want to buy the beer because you want to stare at that can of beer. because you want to be in the state of having drunk the beer. So the beer, it becomes a symbol for the state that you want to be in. So the cognitive things that seem to open up with this kind of movement from the thing that is disgusting to the thing that is appealing seems to be uh, the possibility of deceit, possibility of poisoning and possibility of something being symbolic okay now the next rung on my ladder is delight and delight is a hard one to get a handle on and it's a little easier to understand delight by going to the negative side and talking about the opposites of delight first. So delight has four things that are opposite. There's repulsion, revulsion, revolt, and repugnance. Those are opposites of delight. So repulsion is pushing away. Revulsion is pulling away. Revolt is turning, I think stomach turning. That's gonna be important and repugnance is hitting away right it's from latin right Punio, puniare, to hit all right so it's something you want to get away from you want to get it away from you you want to do this quickly and it's stomach turning so the revolt part is that turning and if you look in for synonyms for all these words you'll find that the word nauseating is a synonym for all of them that's that stomach turning. So if you have a revolution in your country of you a revolt, that means you have a stomach turning of the body politic. Think about that. It's pretty interesting. These are all real quick motions. Okay, so all of those things are clues to what the opposite is. The opposite is delight. So when you delight in something, I'm going to pull it toward you. You want to be close to it. You want to hold it you want to embrace it all right and the feeling just like revulsion or revolt is the stomach turning the feeling is in the belly delight is in the belly all right it's being tickled okay like you tickle a little baby in the belly and they laugh laughter smiles those are all go with delight and just like those actions that were the opposite were fast actions you want because you want to get away from it or rid of it fast the thing that you're repulsed by or that you're revolted by well when you have a sense of delight is a time dilation you want the time to be extended you want to linger with the thing that you delight in think about the grandmother with the little grandchild that she hasn't seen for a while and she sees sees the grandchild and she says oh just stand there for a few minutes and let me just look at you it's that desire to behold all right and to um to linger in the moment now delight has this interesting feature dealing with memory and anticipation related to things that are appealing so if you if something appeals to you and then you consume it and you have the enjoyment of it all right and then you remember it when you remember it you don't it doesn't appeal to you again it's like if you if you had a meal and you were hungry and you ate and the meal was very good when you remember it you don't get hungry again and you don't have the feeling of of having eaten it again, but you have delight in the memory of it. And if you think about doing that again, having that meal again, you'll have anticipatory delight. And in delight, you linger with, in in the memory, the delight is in the lingering with the memory or lingering with the sense of anticipation so you'll when you remember something that is appealing you remember it with delight when you remember something that is disgusting you remember it with revolt with that stomach turning so if you taste something disgusting and you spit it out when you remember that you don't retaste the disgust in your mouth, you sense it, or you feel it in your stomach. Your stomach turns at the thought of putting it in your mouth again. You remember the disgusting event, you remember it with a sense of that stomach turning. It Starts off in your mouth and goes to your stomach when it's in memory, okay? All right, next rung of our ladder. We're going up to wonder and horror. Okay, now we're getting up out of things that I
1: think um the animals under the human experience, maybe. All right. I do think that
0: animals, um, the lower animals, a lot of them can possibly experience some kind of delight. I think you know if you if you get out the leash and, and the frisbee and your dog thinks oh, we're going to the park i think there's anticipatory delight in the animal um and and also and the anticipatory delight it can only be there because there's a memory of having done that before and having had so much fun so i think that some some animals depending on what level of animals we're talking about actually can experience the delight also but I'm not sure about wonder or horror. I think that when we get into wonder and horror we're stepping into in out of the realm of the animals and only the humans. But you can tell me in the comments what you think about that and I think it's I think that's true. Okay so wonder and horror those are our opposites. Now wonder and horror are surprises. Okay, so we say we're surprised by wonder, we're shocked by horror. So this is um, this is in the face, actually. It's something that confronts us. It's something that is in our face. The expression is the mouth and eyes wide, all right? With a different look in the eyes for the horror is from the wonder. With wonder, we want to gaze, we are wrapped, our attention is held, but it's held by a scent, we feel a sense of excitement. So there's also
1: fascination with horror, but with horror we stare, we can't look away. So
0: our attention is being held but not with our ascent, it's just that we can't look away. It's not that we don't want to, but we can't look away. All right, we are transfixed by horror. So what is transfixed? Think about a bug um, that is uh, mounted on on a piece of wood. It's got a pin right through the center of it It's transfixed, okay? That's how
1: we are with horror transfixed we may shudder or we may recoil all right now both wonder and horror um, are
0: very excitable type of emotions well we'd say excitement when it comes to especially when it comes to wonder but both of those Feelings, those responses are very quickly habituated to both wonder and horror are quickly habituated to they don't remain they're transient okay um, if we remain confronted with the wonder our wonder devolves into curiosity right if we remain confronted by the th- horror we can devolve into terror or panic. However, because you can become habituated to horror, some people are able to be so habituated to horror and overcome terror and panic that they can function in um, duties or jobs that cause them to be confronted with horrible things, such as soldiers, such as um, emergency personnel. Um, emergency room, nurses and doctors, people like that. So they may um, be confronted with things that will cause other people to recoil or in horror or be transfixed and unable to move, but they're able to function because they have become habituated to it. Um, Because of this close association of wonder and horror, They're often used in the movies. So, a lot of times, a horror movie will be placed in a setting that is supposed to be full of wonder, like a circus or an amusement park or something like that. And that heightens
1: the contrast between the emotions, the beginning, the wonder, and then the horror comes. When we recall, wonder or when we anticipate
0: wonder like think of a child who's been told that they're going to be taken to an amusement park or to a circus they're anticipating that they're going to be in wonder we anticipate and remember wonder with delight
1: so see it's that middle thing between thing remember things that are appealing we will remember with
0: delight and then wonder will remember with delight so it's a middle kind of a middle term between those two and think about what we say like we'll say something was appealing and delightful don't usually say it was wonderful and appealing but we'll say it was wonderful and delightful so it's like delightful goes with both but those two other things that don't go together we recall or anticipate horror with revulsion. Again, that's the thing that's the opposite of delight, right? So um again it's a it's a middle it's
1: a middle um, state there. So we we recall or anticipate
0: horror with revolt. We also remember we recall or anticipate disgust with revolt that's that stomach turning all right here's a question what is it that produces horror or wonder in us and when john Verveke was doing his lectures on this um, he mentioned the possibility that it had to do with things not fitting together uh, to produce horror like he talked about, you know, the biblical injunctions not to eat certain things, and then maybe it was because their, their body parts didn't seem to fit together in some way. And I thought, hey, eh, I'm not sure that's quite correct, because it's true that like the wolf man is, um, is a horror. I think John Vervaeke might've mentioned the wolf man. But Pegasus is things that don't go together, and Pegasus is a wonder. So what's the difference? Well, late after he had done that segment on um the meaning Crisis video, John Brabake talked
1: to Sevilla on a qua the quality existence channel. And that was
0: um very interesting because he got into more detail about the difference between horror and wonder and what were the things that would cause horror. And they they began to discuss this question of fragmentation versus diversification. That I think is the thing, I think that's the key. So <clears throat> something that's monstrous and the parts don't fit like the Wolfman is actually a, an instance of fragmentation. Um, also things that are fragmenting like mayhem or carnage, death, the body fragmented from the soul or from life, the mind separated from reason, like when um, John Verveke was watching that movie and had that scene in the movie where it was jarring. It was like suddenly um, a sense that, you know, I can't put these pieces together. Whereas with wonder, what you have is the newness, of the bringing together of familiar patterns, but in new ways. So in wonder, you get a glimpse of a deeper harmony. With horror, you're not getting a glimpse of harmony, but of a a fragmentation, things that are not able to be put together. Now, one question that I have about, horror and wonder is whether it's possible that absurdity lies in between them. So absurdity is something we can't make sense of. It seems meaningless, but maybe that's because it's laying in between this diversification and fragmentation. It's It's not interesting in that way of newness enough, doesn't show us a glimpse of harmony so that it's a wonder but it's not so fragmented that it goes over into horror maybe it's kind of middle
1: thing between them okay now the next one up level up is awe and dread so with awe and dread that the um the eyes are open but the mouth is closed
0: okay you think about in the book of job when god talks to job job says you know i cover my mouth that's awe awe is the covering of the mouth wise eyes wide open but mouth covered it's like we're going into something that is beyond beyond our words our something for us to be able to really fully express. We're, we've taken a step beyond.
1: Okay? I believe that there's a couple of kinds of awe and dread. I think there's natural awe, natural dread, and I think there's levels
0: of supernatural drawn it. So let me kind of lay that out a little bit. So natural awe, or dread is provoked by Im- immensity and vastness and something that confronts us with our helplessness and smallness. Now here's, a, here's an example of going from awe to dread. So you climb a mountain and you come around near the top of the mountain and you come over to a cliff where you have a vista laid out before you, it's a beautiful valley, let's say. And as you come around to where you can see this vista and this cliff, you stand there, and the immensity, the vastness of what is spread out before you makes you feel small, but you're standing on something, you're elevated, but you're standing on something and you feel solid, so you have a sense of elevation, Of being held up, and you have a sense of awe. Now, suddenly, a stiff wind comes against your back that seems to almost push you forward to the edge of the cliff, and some of the little stones on the edge roll off and fall down and drop off the edge of the cliff. So, your awe will suddenly turn into dread. It's that sense that you're elevated but you can be dropped okay you're not being held securely you're you're up high the immensity and depth is around you but you can fall that's a sense of going from natural awe to natural dread here's another one that was in a movie this goes the other way this is going from dread to awe so in the superman movie the first one with christopher reeves years and years ago Um, Some of you might remember this, so um, there was a scene, this is, I think this is before he had ever met Lois Lane. But Lois Lane is in a helicopter, and it's at the top of the building, and there's some kind of accident when they're trying to land on the helipad. And she falls, and she actually falls off the side of the building, it's a very tall building, and she's falling. So there's the dread, right? The falling as you're watching her fall. Superman comes up from the ground and he catches her and he says,
1: It's okay, miss, I've got you. And she looks at him and she goes, You've got me? Who's got you?
0: (laughs) Okay, I think that's like that's one of the, you know, archetypal questions of our time. Who's got the Superman if the Superman's got you, right? So, um, Anyway, that was going that one goes from the from went from dread to awe.
1: All right. So with awe, you are held securely over a site
0: or over something that is vast. You can feel like you're even like you're held being held from above. You feel elevated. Um, and at the same time, you're aware of your smallness. Now, natural awe and dread, I think, can be found in relationships of human to human. So when we see another person do something, one of the performance that is just extraordinary, like Aaron Rodgers throwing a Hail Mary at the very end of a Packers game, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing you we experience a sense of awe at seeing that happen or yasha heifetz playing paganini that's something to awesome to look at right so anyway when we see any of these outstanding human performances where we're uh they in we feel inspired we feel elevated because it's as though our nature our human nature is being lifted up by this person who's doing this extraordinary performance and at the same time we feel humbled because we look and we think oh and i couldn't do that <laughs> what have i been doing with my life right and um when we see this kind of performance there's a gesture we might even make that shows us a little bit of what awe awe is involved with because sometimes a person will do something extraordinary and somebody that somebody in that knows them will go like this kind of like it's like a pretend sort of worship right like it's an acknowledgement that you know in you there's something almost divine in what you have accomplished at the same time we can also have an experience of someone who is powerful, who is over us, and who causes us dread. Think of, you know, a king or something that has a lot of power over a peasant and and is threatening them from above, not necessarily from a physical above, but from an above in the sense of the authority. And what is the response of the human to this threat from above? It's to cower, they're overwhelmed by it. Uh, we use language like we think about being consumed by dread. If um, if dread is prolonged, there's no habituation for dread. It creates a sense of intense anxiety with um, a high adrenal reaction now that's all natural that's natural law and natural dread now I want to go
1: into i want to say one more thing about them awe and dread are
0: remembered with wonder and horror. So if you have an experience of awe you will remember it with wonder if you won't re-experience the awe but you'll remember it with wonder if you have an experience of dread and you remember it you won't re-experience the dread but you'll experience it as horror all right now i want to get into the kinds of another kind of dread and this is preternatural dread some people would call it supernatural dread Preternatural is what um in Catholic theology we call things that are between the human level and God, so like uh, the demons, the demonic dread. Okay, so in demonic dread we have an encounter with something that is other than human. <coughs> Excuse me. It's other than human and it creates a very different reaction in us. We have a reaction of being cold, blood runs cold, blood pressure drops, the skin creeps or crawls, hair may stand up, and we have a sense of an evil presence, and it's an evil presence, not like a human presence that we dread like someone in authority, but a presence that is implacable and daunting is not something that we feel we could
1: um, in any way bargain with. Or um, or appeal to um, this is uh, this sense that we have
0: encountered something that is other is very um, profound and it's a very it's not an uncommon human experience. There's a difference between the natural dread, And we can feel the difference and the encounter with the other that is evil. Now, there's supernatural dread and awe, and supernatural dread and awe combine. This is encounter with God. Supernatural dread and awe combine to form the sense of the numinous. Now, the elements that are in the numinous that are like awe, Are the feeling of being elevated caught up transported and yet small unworthy very deep awareness of creatureliness but a very deep awareness of the goodness of that one we are encountering the elements in supernatural in the numinous that are like dread that it comes from above, that we have a sense that we are dealing with something that is wholly, w-h-o-l-l-y, wholly other than human, that and we feel small, we're aware of our creatureliness, we're dealing with someone of overwhelming power, and this sense of the power and the awe That come together are coming together not in our consciousness but in the one that we are encountering that has a personal kind of presence and also has several other elements that are personal
1: love even sometimes to the point of sense of ravishment an energetic will and a sense of of um of energy that um that wants to propel us okay in the the
0: channel the meaning code karen had a conversation with alex and michael and Michael was talking about this encounter with God and the the sense of the um, the dread or the fear combined with the love
1: that he felt, and that is that is the numinous. Now, when we when we recall an encounter with the numinous, when we recall it, we recall it with wonder and with longing to have that encounter again. And we do have a, when we, if we think about not having that encounter again, or if we
0: think that we will be lost from having it, then we feel a sense of dread in that loss so those are the ways the numinous is different from the um, the awe and dread that we can feel either naturally due to the things in our environment due to an encounter with extraordinary circumstances of a human being or an encounter with the preternatural encounter with the demon versus this numinous sense that is an encounter with the divine so that's my ladder going up and so i have some questions just what do you think about this um ladder going up and how i describe these different things you can tell me in the comment section um i have questions about you know, the animals and how they experience and what they're experiencing if moving in the world and making these choices and coming in contact with things and having to move things and consume things and all of this is responsible for things in us like relevance, realization, to what extent does this apply to animals and at what level would it go down to animals? I think about delight and that time dilation. And I kind of wonder if that sounds familiar to you. I'd really like to know what, um, burn power the anadromist has thinks about that because he has been talking a lot about our sense of time and whether we used to live in time and now we live against time which is kind of an interesting concept and um, so I'd be interested to know what he thinks about that and just generally whether this sounds um, familiar and sounds right to you in the way that I laid it out so I hope you'll um, take a look at my ladder and from the in the Google Doc and let me know what you think in the meantime, until we get together again, treat yourself as if you are someone you're responsible for helping because you are responsible, and
1: so am I, and together we are making the world. Bye.